Well, we're going to turn this morning to one of those jewels of God's Word. We wrapped up our look at the book of Romans last week, and so we're going to take a short tour through an Old Testament book. So God, of course, has given us many wonderful stories in the Bible, uh, but all of them point to one place, to God, to Christ, um, to the work that God has done. And so this morning, let me have you turn with me in your Bibles to the Old Testament book of Ruth. Small book, if you're not very familiar or new to the Scriptures, it's the eighth book of the Old Testament. A small book, so it's easy to miss. It's um, right after Judges and right before 1 Samuel. And as you find Ruth, you can be seated. I guess you can be seated any time. We don't want to let everybody know who the last one to be able to find Ruth was. <laughs> we'll read the first chapter of Ruth in just a little bit here, but the book of Ruth is, is a brief story, just four chapters, a simple story, really. In its telling, it is a beautiful story, uh, a magnificent story. It's really a, a literary masterpiece in the way that it's put together. And what's more, the themes that it speaks about, that it, uh, in that analogy of the mind, the, the, the jewels that are hidden in the book of Ruth are amazing. Uh, they treat themes that are important to the Old Testament record and, in fact, to the whole of Scripture. It is a lofty uh, and indispensable, really, book and things that we don't think of when we, when we read through the book of Ruth. But we're going to take, I think, just three weeks to, uh, to look through the book of Ruth. It's a narrative, and so it's telling a story, and it moves very quickly. And the way I want to handle this story is just to go through that narrative, just to go through that story and point out some of the things as we go along, wonderful things, some of the, the best ones, some of the, the most important ones. In fact, one of the primary points of the book we won't see until we get to the last few verses of the book. But all of it's wonderful. All of it is great to, to look at. Um, so even to, to go through this like this will require a few weeks. Um, there is some, it's very easy to read in one sitting, so I might encourage you at home to, to read through the whole book. But we'll, as I say, take about three weeks to go through the book of Ruth and to look at what I've called Ruth, Relatives, and Redemption. Some of the background, some of the peripheral issues, the setting are very important to understanding this book. And so we're going to begin by looking at an introduction and the setting. We're going to set apart a, a, a point, if you will, a, a heading for that to look at that because it really serves to put the, the grace of God into relief in, in this book. Uh, and so I want to include here as a separate point the, the setting to get us going on that. The story, as I said, of Ruth is beautiful, very straightforward, which is part of its beauty. But we can miss some of that beauty if we don't take a little time to look at some of those introductory things that are given to us in the very opening words of the book. 
The events that are recorded in the book of Ruth cover about 11 years, and it's important to see what's going on in those 11 years. So to really appreciate it, let's look at those first few words and, and then take a little bit of time to look at them. So follow along. Keep your, your Bible out as we go through this, but look at verse 1 with me and just the opening words where it says there, in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. We can stop there. In the days, it says, when the judges ruled. Here's the setting, really, of the time of what is happening or when this is happening. This is a a time when judges ruled. You're familiar with the book of Judges. Perhaps the, the things that happen in the book of Ruth are happening during the time of Judges. So this is a time after the days of the patriarchs, after Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. This is after the time of Moses. This is after the time of Joshua and the people of Israel coming through the promised land and going into the the new land. It's before Saul. It's before the monarchy. And right during that in-between time is the time of the judges. And in fact, Ruth, we will see, the book of Ruth, the events here serve a, a vital purpose as a link between that patriarchal time, that earlier time, and the time of the kings in Israel. What was like life like in that time, during the time of the judges? And who were the judges anyway? Were they like a Supreme Court sitting and and judging over Israel? Well, the book of Judges, which takes place right after the death of Joshua, right after the conquest of the, the promised land, or we should say the partial conquest, the book begins, the book of Judges begins by listing several of the tribes and describing how several of them had not driven the foreigners out of the land. So it is a partial conquest, how they had, had not driven out the land that they had been commanded to do. And the writer there in the book of, of Judges actually gives us a summary of what the book of Judges is about. And since this is the setting for the book of Ruth, it will help us to, to hear this, listen to this from Judges chapter 2. This is what Judges is about. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had brought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them, and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Ashtoreth. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm, as the Lord had warned and as the Lord had sworn to them. And they were in terrible distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hand of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who they had obeyed or who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord and they did not do so whenever the Lord raised up judges for them the Lord was with the judge and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge for the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them but whenever the judge died they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers going after other gods serving them and bowing down to them they did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. That's the, that's the cycle of the judges, right? And you know the book of Judges, you know that that cycle was repeated over and over and over. 
the people would turn away from the Lord and serve these other gods. And so God would send uh, plunderers. They would send, he would send other nations to come and, and give them victory over the Israelites. Then finally the Israelites would cry out to God and, and repent, and God would send a, a judge who would come and who would rescue them from, from these nations who had come against them. And they were very happy, and then as soon as that happened, they turned their back again on God. And that happens again and again and again. And that cycle repeated itself over and over for 350 years. The important thing about that and the reason for spending that time there is to remind us that it's during that time that the events of the book of Ruth take place. The book of Ruth, coming right after Judges, follows on on that book and is really to us a a breath of fresh air. You know, as we consider the book of Judges is about the evil of the people and their idolatry. But then we see the book of Ruth that is so different, that is such a, a, a wonderful reminder to us that God always has his people. Even in the time of Judges, he had a people. There was a, a remnant that he preserves in faith, and that's so important for us and so helpful for us to remember, to be reminded of. The story that we're going to be looking at occurred during one of these cycles of idolatry, punishment, repentance, restoration. And some marvelous themes are going to come out of the book of Ruth as we look through it. Themes of redemption, themes of providence, the providence of God, the sovereignty of God is throughout the book. The, the, the line of the Messiah runs right through the book of Ruth. The depth of God's grace is seen here in the book of Ruth, so it's really an amazing book. And the story, as I say, takes place during the time of the judges. Which judge, we don't know. Um, There's nothing that ties the story of Ruth to a particular judge, and the, the different guesses that scholars make about which judge are so all over the place that perhaps it's best not to speculate at all, because it's really not important to the book of Ruth which judge it, these things take place under. But remember that during the time of the judges, there was this cycle. But there were other ways that God used to get his people's attention other than bringing other nations upon them. And we see one of those ways in this opening verse as we look at the situation here. Verse 1 tells us that in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine, a famine in the land. Now, if you're familiar with that time period and you know, through your study of Scripture, you know that, that famines were somewhat regular occurrences. They could come for many reasons, uh, but a famine could destroy a whole civilization. It was a serious thing. One of the things that could bring forth a famine on a land, particularly the land of Israel, as we're thinking here, is that God used them to chasten his people when they were rebellious. In Leviticus 26, the writer Moses there says that if you instead reject my statutes, if your soul abhors my ordinances so as to not carry out all of my commandments and so break my covenant, I in turn will do this to you. I will set my face against you so that you shall be struck down before your enemies And those who hate you shall rule over you, and you shall flee when no one is pursuing you. 
If also after these things you do not obey me, then I will punish you seven times more for your sins, and I will also break down your pride of power. I will also make your sky like iron and your earth like bronze, and your strength shall be spent uselessly, for your land shall not yield its produce, and the trees of the land shall not yield their fruit. And so as we come to the book of Ruth, that is what has happened here. There was a famine in the land. Particularly the place that we want to mention here, notice here, is that this takes place in an ironic setting. If we read verse 1 again, it says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab. Now, we hear Bethlehem, and we immediately think of Christmas and of the birth of Christ, and it's a very uh, predominant city in our minds, at least. But at this time in, in, the, in the history of Israel, Bethlehem was a very insignificant city. It mentions, the writer mentions there that it's Bethlehem in Judah. That serves two purposes. Once it differentiates it from another Bethlehem up in the north, But as we see, as we will see when we go through, the idea that this is Bethlehem in Judah is going to be important. So keep that in mind. The the name of the town means, which is um, Bethlehem, Bethlehem, means uh, house of bread. But at this time in this story, the house of bread had no bread for its sons or daughters. And we're told that a certain man with his wife and their two sons, decide that in order for them to live, in order for them to survive, they need to leave. One of the reasons that we understand that this is um, an act of God chastening his people is that this famine was just localized, it seems, to Israel. Because these people leave and go to a neighboring country, and there's no famine being experienced there. And so we begin from Bethlehem, and in our second point that will take us through the rest of our time this morning, we're going to look at the fact that this goes from Bethlehem to Bethlehem. Chapter 1 begins and ends in Bethlehem. So let me read the first chapter to you. That will be our text this morning. Like I said, we're going to go fairly quickly through it. But let me have you stand as we're going to read this whole chapter here of God's Word And this is God's word to us this morning. Let's give heed to it. It says, In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land, and a man of Bethlehem in Judah went to sojourn in the country of Moab, he and his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem in Judah. They went into the country of Moab and remained there. But Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died, and she was left with her two sons. These took Moabite wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. They lived there about ten years, and both Malon and Kilion died, so that the woman was left without her two sons and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law to return from the country of Moab, for she had heard in the fields of Moab that the Lord had visited his people and given them food. So she set out from the place where she was with her two daughters-in-law, and they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you, as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. 
And she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, we will return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Turn back, my daughters. Why will you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that, you may, that they may become your husbands? Turn back, my daughters. Go your way, for I am too old to have a husband. If I should say I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons, would you therefore wait till they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Then they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. And she said, See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me, and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. And when Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more. So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full, and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me, Na- call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? So Naomi returned, and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law, with her, who returned from the country of Moab. And they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of barley harvest. May the Lord place his blessing on the reading of his word. You can be seated. So let's review this story, which is what we want to do this morning. This man, Elimelech, a name which means God is king, who was of the house of Judah. Remember, keep that filed away. Because of this famine that was taking place in Judah, he took his wife and he took their two sons and moved, uh, verse 2 tells us, into the country of Moab and sojourned there, remained there. The idea of sojourning is with the intent of making a short stay. And that was their intention. And they moved into the country of Moab. Now the country of Moab, we need to take another brief pause and, and think a little bit about them. Because this is an important aspect of the story that's often overlooked, that they went uh, to Moab. Moab is a land that is just east of the Dead Sea. Remember, uh, Israel is just west of the Dead Sea. Moab is on the east side of the Jordan River. Moab is a cursed land, or was a cursed land, with a cursed people. The people of Moab were enemies of God. They were corrupt in their Roots, as a nation, they were corrupt in their religion. They were corrupt in their rebellion and their their rejection of God. They were corrupt in their roots. Uh, Moab was named for Moab, (laughs) cleverly enough, uh, the son of Lot, whose descendants they were. Um, Moab was the son of Lot and Lot's oldest daughter through an incestuous action that is recorded in Genesis 19. So in their very roots, the very beginning, they were a corrupt people from a corrupt root. Uh, In their religion, they worshipped idol gods, particularly a god named Chemosh. Uh, They practiced child sacrifice. 
as part of their worship. So in their religion, they rejected the true God and worshiped this false God. They were also corrupt in their rejection of God and their rebellion against his people. The people of Moab were perennial enemies of Israel. During this time period, Moab oppressed Israel during the days of the judges for 18 years. Um, And even before they entered the promised land, remember Moab was ruled by a king named Balak, who, remember, attempted to curse Israel through hiring the false prophet Balaam to come and pronounce a curse, uh, which, if you remember that story, God turned into a blessing every time he tried to do it. But these were rebellious people. These were haters of God. They were haters of Israel, even though they had a common uh, background. So as a result of all of these things, God had pronounced a curse on the nation of Moab. And you can read about that curse several places in the Old Testament. In Isaiah 15 and 16, it's related. Um, In Jeremiah 48 and Ezekiel 25 and Amos 2, I'll speak about this curse on the nation of Moab. The next thing we want to see is the story, we'll call it the story of the men for just a moment here, because this is where Elimelech goes. Evidently, as I said, there's no famine there. Again, we're seeing, remember to see in that God's providence. In God's providence, Israel had a famine, but, but Moab didn't, and that's where Elimelech go. Verse 1 says that he went to sojourn or to dwell there. Again, it's a temporary resident, but they apparently stayed on. Uh, Verse 4 says that they stayed there for 10 years. And while they were there, three important things happened to this family. The first is that Elimelech dies. We're not told how, we're not told why, just that he dies. Secondly, the two sons of Elimelech and Naomi marry Moabite women. Verse 4 tells us that. Now, there was no formal prohibition of marrying Moabite women. They were not part of those seven nations that are um, specifically singled out that the children of Israel were not to marry. Uh, But certainly, a worshiper of God going and marrying someone from a nation that was a worshiper of Chemosh uh, was not not a good choice. But both of these sons, being in Moab, marry Moabite women. And then... There's a connection here where they're not told about it, but the two sons themselves die. Uh, We can speculate about the reason for the death of these three men. The text doesn't tell us. It is in the flow of the story not important as to how they died. The important thing is that they did die and that Naomi is left alone, except she has two daughters-in-law with her. Elimelech's wife who went to Moab with a husband and son and the promise of a good progeny is now left empty as far as the the hope for progeny. Down in verse 21, we read this. Naomi says, I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. So that's the story of the men. It's not a very happy story for them. Uh, But now the story of the women. So Naomi is left in this foreign land, this pagan land, with nothing but her two foreign daughters-in-law. One was named Orpah. That's not Oprah, as you're reading it. It's Orpah. Uh, It's a name that that comes from the Hebrew word for a neck. And so it could either be, it's either a good name or a bad name. It could be like a gazelle. Think of the Song of Solomon and the the neck of the woman being described. Or it could also refer to someone being stiff-necked. 
So we're not sure which of those two um, is meant here. But the name of the other is Ruth, after whom the book is named. Ruth's name means friendship. And that is a very appropriate name, as we'll see. So Naomi hears in the fields of Moab, as she's going about her, her business, she hears that the Lord has brought food back to Israel. God has removed the famine from Israel. And so she decides, verse 6 tells us, to return. As she returns, she has no one but her two daughters-in-law. But look at what she does. Look at verse 8. But Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go, return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with the dead and with me. The Lord grant that you may find rest, each of you, in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. You know, Naomi, who has nothing else except these two women, says to them, go home. Don't come back with me. Uh, Each of you go to your mother's house. Each of you remarry. Each of you be blessed. Go on your life uh, and find rest. And at the end of verse 9, they all have a, a good cry, as women are wont to do from time to time. But see then the responses of the two women. Orpah and Ruth, in verse 10, they both say, no, we'll stay with you. We will go and and live among your people, which is interesting. If you see it there um, in verse 10, they said to her, no, we will return with you to your people. Keep that in mind as well. So Naomi reiterates and says, why? Why would you want to go back with me? She says, I'm too old. You won't be getting any more husbands from me. There are no other uh, sons that she had that could marry them. And she says, even if I were to remarry and have more male children, you're not going to wait for them to grow up to marry them. So just go. But notice something about these people here. And we'll see this about all of the people throughout this book, that they're just good people. You know, not in the... Not in the law of God kind of good. They're not perfect people, but they're good people. They're authentic people. Authentic people um, just living out their lives. Naomi is a, is a person, a woman of faith. You know, and they, they, they live their life, and she lives her life, not through any great deeds, but in their kindness and goodness and faithfulness and loyalty. They just live as good people. And again, we'll see this with the others. And by the way, that's how we have the opportunity really to impact our circle of acquaintances for Christ. We're probably, none of you here, maybe some, but probably none are going to do great things for the Lord, not going to start any sort of missionary agency or, or become a great preacher in front of thousands of people. Just being good people following God's law as well as you can, being faithful to God. That's how we impact our society. We're faithful. We put the priority of of worship, the priority of God's word, the priorities that are God's priorities, the priorities that he gives us in the scripture, making those our priorities and just living our lives. That's how we impact people because that's so different than what the rest of the world does. The world has other priorities, and they're evident, typically. And when you live your life according to the priorities of Scripture, guess what? Those will be evident. And the people here in this story are living those kinds of lives. 
And this is seen here primarily in their concern for the welfare of others. Naomi is only the first to show it here. But we'll see in it that all three of the main characters of the story will act the same way. The other thing that's important for us to to kind of draw out of this is how Naomi is not just speaking wishfully when she said in verse 11, have I yet sons in my womb that they may become your husbands? Uh, She's not just saying, you know, I, I sort of expect you to wait around for my sons if I had any to marry them. There's more to it than just that wishful sort of thinking. In the laws of Israel, there was a provision for widows Uh, that was known as, you can either pronounce it, leveret or leverite marriage. Uh, Deuteronomy 25 verse 5 describes this. Um, You might see the word Levi in there and think that it has something to do with Levites or priests, but it doesn't. The word that we have as leverite comes from a Latin word that means a husband's brother. And what that is saying there is that if Naomi had any other sons, younger sons, who were not yet married that they would have an obligation under this law to marry one of the widows and raise up children who would carry on the name of the dead brother and receive the inheritance. The oldest son of such a marriage would be considered the son of the one who had died. And Naomi is saying to them, there's not even any hope of that. In verse 12, she says that. If I should... Say, I have hope, even if I should have a husband this night and should bear sons. You know, you're not going to wait. Naomi says, basically, I have nothing to offer you. There is no reason for you to follow me back to Judah, back to Bethlehem. She says, no, my daughters, for it is, an, it is exceedingly bitter to me for your sake that the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. On the one hand there, Naomi recognizes the providence of God which, as I mentioned earlier, is one of the major players in this story as we're going to see it over the next few weeks. Um, We'll see it all the way through. We'll see it tied together all neatly at the end. Even, Even so far we've seen it, right? A famine in Israel. This particular man decides to leave and to go to this particular place, and his sons, especially Malon, marrying this particular woman named Ruth. And the coincidence that all three of them die, that word came to Naomi that she heard that there was food now back in Israel. The Lord was again bringing uh, bread to the house of bread. You know, all of these lead the way for these, for these two women, particularly Naomi and Ruth, to return to Bethlehem, which we'll see in a moment. But first look at verse 14. Naomi has tried to talk the girls into going back to their Moabite families and to marry Moabite men and go on with their life. Verse 14, though, says, Then they lifted up their voices and wept again, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. The kiss that Orpah gives to her mother-in-law is a kiss of farewell, and she goes on her way. Orpah leaves. Ruth stays. It says that Ruth clung to her. Look at verse 15. And she said, see, this is her speaking to to Ruth. See, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. You know, notice that too, and to her gods. You know, going back to your old life. Orpah went back 
to her people, to her family, but also to Chemosh. She went back into her idolatry. Her time with this family of Israelite people had not changed her. God had not chosen to change her. And so she kisses Naomi and goes on back. But Ruth doesn't. Verse 16, Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people shall be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die, and there will I be buried. May the Lord do so to me and more also, if anything but death parts me from you. This is the high point of the first chapter of the book of Ruth. And let's take a few moments and look at it. The statement that that she makes is crafted in a very purposeful and a, a beautiful way. Now, we might think, why? Why not we don't summarize it and move on? Well, just because God gave it in this form. God had it written in this, this form that we're going to talk about in just a minute. And he did so for a reason. And here's how we consider this. This is a structural thing. I don't want to get in the weeds too much about this. But this is a specific structure that emphasizes a particular part of this statement. There are five parts to what Ruth says here. And the way it's constructed is, is like this. The first one and the last one say uh, basically the same thing. The second one and the fourth one say basically the same thing. And it all draws our attention to the one in the middle. That's the most important statement. So the outside statements, the first and the fifth are in parallel. The next two are in parallel. And the center is the the fulcrum, the pivot point. Also, everything is made up of, of pairs of statements except the one in the middle. So two at the beginning, two at the end, and then the next two, and then the center one. She begins by saying, we'll look at the first and last. She says in verse 16, do not urge me to leave you or to return from following you. So she says, please don't keep asking me to leave. I don't want to leave. I want to go with you. And at the other end, her statement, she adds an oath to that same idea. And it's this, expressed in a very common way of speaking of, of these serious oaths. She says, may the Lord do so to me and more also. So may God punish me. May God do something to me more than I can imagine if I don't do what I'm saying. It's a very serious way to make an oath before the Lord. Not only do I not want to leave you, but if I ever do, may the Lord bring down judgment on me and I call him to witness. Very strong. May the Lord do so to me and, also, and more also if anything but death parts me from you. So here's those two outside statements saying the same thing. Um, And people were very serious about those oaths, by the way, not like today when people take oaths and they just don't mean anything except usually a way to get something or to get out of something. So that's the outside pair of statements. The next pair of statements expands on Ruth's riches or wishes in regard to her desire to stay with Naomi. She says in the second statement, where you go, I will go. Where you lodge, I will lodge. Makes sense. She's saying, I will stay with you. Orpah went back home, but my home is with you. I am part of your family now, and I take that seriously, and I want it to continue, and wherever you are, I will be. Then the fourth statement, the other uh, bookend of that, at the beginning of verse 17, follows that up. She says, not only where you go, I will go, and where you lodge, I will lodge, but she says, where you die, I will die. And there 
will I be buried? You know, this is going to continue on through the rest of my life. Not only will I live where you live, and, and, but I will die and be buried where you die and are buried. Ruth is really saying here that she is serious about considering herself a part of Naomi's family. Remember, relatives would be buried together. And Ruth is saying, I will be buried on the family plot, so to speak. So Ruth is expressing in the strongest way possible that her desire is to stay with Naomi, to accompany her back to Bethlehem and Israel and to be part of her family, to be an Israelite, not a Moabite any longer, an Israelite. And that brings us to the central part of her statement to Naomi. In the original, it's, it's worded very tersely, very simply, very briefly, a very staccato almost, uh, that adds to the emphasis. But look at the end of verse 16. In the English, we have it this way. Your people shall be my people and your God my God. In the, literally, it says, your people, my people, your God, my God. Only four words in the original. But in this one statement, Ruth turns her back on everything that she had ever known. Everything in Moab that she had ever counted as important. Everything that she had ever hoped for. Everything that she had ever worshipped. Her homeland, her people, her gods. And she makes a statement that that echoes, doesn't it, the the covenantal motto of the God of Israel and the people of Israel. When God said, I will be your God and you will be my people. Ruth says, your people shall be my people and your God, my God. So in this statement that Ruth makes to her mother-in-law, Ruth expresses not just her desire to be with Naomi and to cease being a Moabitess and to become an Israelitess, but she expresses the converting power of the God of Israel that has been working in her. This is the expression of a converted heart. Your God will be my God. And it seals the deal with Naomi, so to speak. In verse 18, it says, When Naomi saw that she was determined to go with her, she said, No more. And without a Another glance back down the road to Moab, to her former home, to her former people, to her former God, Ruth follows Naomi on the seven to ten day journey to Judah and back to Bethlehem. A couple of concluding notes before we wrap up. Naomi was eventually, as they, as they come back and we'll see this, she was evidently a well-known person in Bethlehem. She was well-liked. In verse 19, it says, So the two of them went on until they came to Bethlehem. And when they came to Bethlehem, the whole town was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? Now, that could be them saying, Is it Naomi? Is she back finally? Or they could be going, Is that Naomi? Because she's had a rough time. Um, It's a transitional verse here, really, verse 22 is rather, um, and it concludes the first act of the story. And what we'll we'll see as this goes on that that Naomi has had a rough time, but her time is going to change because of what God is going to do. But apparently here in verse 19, this time it's taken a toll on her. 
Because the women who should have known her said, is this Naomi? I think it's probably the second. Is that Naomi? She went out, and she'll say it here. She says, I went out full. I've come back empty. And they noticed that. So again, verse 22 says this, that Naomi returned and Ruth the Moabite, her daughter-in-law with her, who returned from the country of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Notice that the, the, the author keeps saying, uh, Ruth the Moabite. They don't, he doesn't want us to forget that, that Ruth has come from where she has come, and we'll see that uh, continue as well. Don't forget that, though, the author says, by keeping to repeat it. And let's not, because it is going to be extremely important. The God of Israel, the God who has guided these events, the events of these, these people, people that otherwise we would have never heard about, he's, he's guided their lives in great detail for reasons that they have no idea about. See, they can't read the, the end of the book. They can't know what has happened. They can't read on into the history of Israel and see how important this little band of people is to the nation of Israel going forward. Though Naomi recognized the providence of God and the things that happened, at this point in the story, it didn't bring her much hope. Look at verse 20. When she said to them, do not call me Naomi, call me Mara, a word that means bitter. Uh, she says, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went away full and the Lord has brought me back empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has testified against me and the Almighty has brought calamity upon me? It's kind of a woe is me kind of statement. You know, it's the same with us. God guides our lives. He guides our lives in, in, to the utmost detail. He is sovereign over every aspect of our lives. And people of God this morning, you can't read the end of the book. Well, you can. You can read Revelation. But the end of your book, you can't read. But you don't need to. You just need to live day by day trusting in God, trusting in his providence, trusting in his sovereignty, trusting in his love for you, which he has expressed for you by sending his son to die for you. And we can trust in the fact that as someone once said, I don't know what the future holds, but I know who holds the future. And that can sound trite, that can sound cliche, but you know what it also is? True. And it's there's a reason that it gets used so much that it becomes trite and cliche because it's a wonderful truth. It's a truth that sometimes is the only thing that we have to grab a hold of when things are going very bad. When it looks like God sent us away full but has brought us back empty. We see here already the great stooping grace of God. You know, God often demonstrates his grace, often demonstrates his sovereignty by going to the extreme and working in ways that seem completely opposite to what we would expect, doesn't he? Now, he chose a people in the Old Testament who were the smallest and most insignificant of people, and he said, I've chosen you to be my people. He reached out to a, a man in his pagan homeland, a man named Abram, and he said, go to the land that I am going to show you, and I will give you that land, and I will bless you, 
and all nations will be blessed through you. Just as here he called this woman Ruth out of her pagan homeland and family and gods. And as we will see, we'll use her to bring about that very blessing that he promised to Abraham is going to go through Ruth. He calls people from among Israel. But not all who are born of Israelite Jewish blood are the true Israel. We saw that when we were looking at Romans. And here is a woman who is taken from a cursed nation, Moab, and God in his sovereign good pleasure brings her to himself. Remember that we saw that Moab was a people that were cursed in three ways, in their roots, in their religion, and in their rejection of God. That could be used to describe every one of us here this morning, couldn't it? We are cursed in our roots. We are corrupt in our our very nature, our fallenness. We are cursed offsprings of the sinful race of Adam, conceived and born in sin. We are cursed in our religion. Before God saves us, we worshiped and served, again from Romans, the creature rather than the creator. We served a God that we made up, whatever it looks like. And we were cursed in our rejection of God and our rebellion against him. We suppressed the truth of God in unrighteousness. We loved the darkness rather than the light. We we did our sins in the night, hating God and loving those that hate God. But let us give praise to God this morning as we close that the day has dawned and the light of God, which is Jesus Christ, has shined in our hearts. That God has pulled us out of Moab and sent us to Bethlehem from where a Savior was born. We read this story of Ruth, and in it we see God's guiding and powerful hand in bringing Ruth to the place where she longs for and willingly is bound to God and to the people of God. And we rightly say, it is marvelous in our eyes. But people of God, never think that your own salvation is any less marvelous than what happened to Ruth or that it was any more likely. Salvation is of the Lord. So we give praise to God today that his sovereign grace, which he shows to us, is not dependent on us being born in the right place or at the right time. But he stoops down and he saves the Ruths as well as the Naomi's. He saves people in crack houses as much as he saves people in Christian houses. Because they all need the same thing, salvation. We all need forgiveness of our sins, and God gives it to anyone freely, freely to as many who will call on his name. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the, even the beginning of this story. We see so much here, Father. And, and we pray that you would use it to to remind us of your greatness and of your grace and of your providence, of your sovereignty, Lord. And we pray that you would use it to prepare us for even more wonderful things that we're going to see as this story progresses. We ask, Lord, that we would be thankful for what you have given us, that that we would be thankful for the fact that, that we, wherever we are, wherever we have been, if we are yours, Lord, that is because you have reached down and you have pulled us out, that you have given us faith that you have given us Christ and that you have given us all of the spiritual blessings that come through him.
And we praise you for it. We thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen.